I've noticed something about myself that I'm not sure I like. See, there are things that if I get used to them, they become boring to me. It's as if the familiar can become the dull. Maybe reflect on this with me a little bit. Think of a Christmas present you once got, maybe even last year. And at the start, the first impression was excitement and maybe surprise, wonder, and enjoyment. Now think of that exact same gift, that exact same item, a year later, today. Has familiarity lowered appreciation? See, I think this principle makes me cautious around today's text because as we look at Luke chapter 2, we're coming to one of the most well-known sections of this New Testament book. Whether you're a Christian or not, or you've been to church before or not, you're likely familiar with some of its elements because it's the traditional Christmas story. And, and in combination with this principle of familiarity, we also have our present circumstance in society. Perhaps there are things about Christmas that you once cherished that have changed. And maybe like Charlie Brown, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking, you know, Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. They're, they're, the way in which the year has unfolded, the way that you, you find yourself right now, maybe you're questioning like, why do I even need a message about Christmas for? What do I need this familiar section of Luke's gospel for? Does it really matter for me right now, this ancient story in my present context? And like Charlie Brown, maybe you're at that crisis point where it's like, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Fortunately, you know, Chuck has a little help from his friend Linus in that 1960s Christmas special. And Linus drops some truth. And it's it, what he recites is actually originally what Luke wrote. And so I, I want to I I do some things that break a little, some of my rules for how I would normally do a talk like this. I want to overwhelm us today with the depth and a lot of the layers of this artistic masterpiece moment in the gospel story. I'm believing that it is possible that where you are at, God could highlight things afresh for you so that the familiar actually moves into something more full. Because look, there's, there's not just something to listen to here. There is something to love here. And so maybe you need to pause. Maybe you need to pause this message, spend some time in prayer, ask God to show up. Ask him to highlight something for you. Maybe you need to find a way to get some notes or, or an actual Bible and track along with us as we go through the story. Because like a tour guide, what I'm going to do is I'm going to park the bus at specific locations and point out some things as we go. And we're going to start at verse 1 moving forward to see what is it about this story that is overwhelmingly good. So starting in verse one of chapter two, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. First stop, and we really need to be clear on this because this is not a fictional story. Luke has been claiming to give us an historical count of events in the past. Think back to chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The biblical story is not a myth. The Christmas story is not a legend. No, what the claim is here is that this is about God's activity in history. And Luke gives us some clues to back this claim up. Look at what we've read. We've read through some names. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, 
specific historical figures. You can look elsewhere in the other Gospels about the fact that King Herod the Great is on the scene. All of this information, all of this data, Roman historians like Josephus and Tacitus pick up and write about so that scholars can locate this moment in history, probably somewhere around 4 or 5 BC. And with all of this in mind, let's keep going into verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, going up makes sense because there's an elevation gain across the 100 kilometer journey, went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay, second stop. What we would see immediately if we were steeped in the story of the gospel in the, in the biblical narrative thus far is a profound and simple truth that when God says something, he means it. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've watched a TV show before, say on Disney Plus or Netflix or something, and, and you kind of put yourself in the middle of a, of a certain season of a series, and as the episode starts, the makers of that show want to remind you of, of certain key moments that came before that will inform you what to expect and understand for that present episode you're on. And when that happens, it's like previously on begins, you'll also notice this little button pop up that says skip recap. Well, what we don't want to do today is we don't want to push that button. We don't want to push the skip recap button because there's so much information that is helpful to carry in to this scene to see, wow, there is something going on that we must understand. That when God says something, he really means it. So rewind a little bit with me. Let's go back previously on the story of the Bible in the gospel story of what God is doing in Jesus. Back in chapter one of Genesis one, the first book of the Bible, one God creates a perfect world. Chapter three of Genesis, humanity, his prized creation in the world rebels against him, sins against them and brokenness and death, a lack of peace is introduced into the story. And yet, this God, in his mercy and in his grace and in his power, promises to fix the problem. And as the solution works its way towards completion, all throughout hundreds of years and all these biblical books in the Old Testament, we see certain things that would tip us off to what Luke is writing here in chapter 2. There's something significant about the location and the lineage of David. We've seen the word David pop up in the verses we've just read. Maybe we missed them, but there's something about David, his, lo- his lineage, and this location of Bethlehem that is significant. So previously in the story, you could see in places like 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel is sent by God to find the next king of his people. He says, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. There's a significance of the place of Bethlehem. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, who? David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Fast forward to another key scene from 2 Samuel, where God's addressing Samuel, er, addressing David, saying, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So somebody in the lineage of David 
is going to come and do this. Another place, another key scene, Micah chapter 5, where this prophecy is, is spoken 700 years before Luke's scene that we've read. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Finally, a scene in Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, another promise. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign, where? On David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All of these previous episodes, all these previous scenes are pointing to a signaling force. Something significant is going to happen. Someone significant is going to come from a place of, uh, that's connected to David. And it's going to happen here in this scene in Luke. Even in Luke chapter 1, we're tipped off to the, the, the fact that we are on the cusp of this scene unfolding in human history. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, remember what it says there. This prophecy about the, the baby that's going to be born. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The whole goal of the story of the Bible, the whole goal of the gospel is about God's presence. It's about, it's about God with us. It's broken in this first part of the story. And it's starting to unfold that, that, wow, is there a way in which God is going to be with us again? And here it is, we find this, what God says he has meant and he has acted on. Even though it took a long time, even though Jesus is long expected, here we are in this scene. When God says something to you, do you believe him? In the place you find yourself right now, could you trust God again? Could you trust him that what he says he means? So that the promises of peace and, and the statements he makes about prayer and about your identity and about your future for those who are in Christ, that he really means what he says. That regardless of if the deck is stacked against you right now this Christmas, that you can have confidence in his word and in his work. See, there, there is no time, there is no place, there is no situation that is unfavorable for an unstoppable God to keep his promises. And certainly it would have felt like this at the first Christmas. Like, you're looking at a place like Bethlehem here in this, this tumultuous region of the world that's, that's, you know, where there's this impoverished and isolated setting, hundreds of years in the making. What's this going to look like? God is not yet finished. God has not abandoned his people or his promises. He's working towards them. Let's continue in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, where? The city of David, who? A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
stop number three on our tour of this passage. If I could have chosen a single chunk of this section to camp out on for our whole time today, it would have been right here. I mean, I mean, look at what is happening. The glory of the Lord, something that was typically associated with the temple and, and, and a particular place, is now showing up on farmland to shepherds to announce something significant, someone significant has come. I mean, you know, there, there's lots to point out in this vivid scene, but let's zero in on, 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 on three things. The character of the shepherds, the character of the proclamation, and the character of this baby. So first, the character of the shepherds. Uh, this, this type of class, these type of people, they weren't held in, in high esteem at this point in time. They were, they were often commonly you know, seen as, as thieves and, and ceremonially unclean. They were, they were despised and, and, and typically rejected by the religious elite of that day. This is, this is a very peculiar type of people that God would choose to make such an announcement to. And yet, the ultimate shepherd who has been promised this whole time, who would shepherd his people, is announced to shepherds. Isn't that fascinating? That although, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of credibility, especially when it came to legal matters, their testimony wouldn't be considered valid, yet here it is that the glory of God comes and shines on them and announces to them this pivotal moment in human history. Isn't it remarkable that the one who would be known as the Good Shepherd and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by sacrificing his life would be introduced first to such an audience. Like don't, like, don't you love the Christmas story? The second thing, you know, the second characteristic we want to look at is the characteristic of the proclamation that is made. Luke tells us that it's good news. This is a loaded word because both to the Jewish faith and to the Roman culture, there's meaning packaged around this term. To the Jewish faith, this is language that they would be familiar with from the gospel promises in places like Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 61. They were awaiting the good news of God's chosen savior, a Messiah to arrive. So, and to citizens of the Roman empire, this is language that they would be familiar with from the announcement of the rule of Augustus. Uh, they, they, the, th the theory was, uh, or at least the, the reality at that time, was that Augustus, Caesar Augustus, we've been introduced to, his birthday was heralded as the beginning of the good news for the Roman people. And, you know, uh, both the Jewish audience and, and those of the Gentile background would have heard something profound here. Look at how one scholar puts it. Luke then has drawn on language embedded in the culture of Roman religion and legitimization of power, and in the culture of Jewish trust in divine intervention and rule. He exploits the socio-political religious depth of that language in both cultures, then transforms that language by vesting it in a message about a newborn baby in a manger spoken to peasant shepherds. This is good news, and I know most of us probably feel like we need some good news. Like this year has been full of a lot of bad news, one after the other. We need some good news, and maybe it's more than just some amazing videos on YouTube of great things that people have done this year. Maybe it's something that's comprehensively beneficial for the whole world. And here's the claim today, that all of this good news is bound up and uniquely found in the person of Jesus. That's where you can find it. That's where this scene, this Christmas story is pointing us to today.
Who is this Jesus? Let's look here third, the character of the baby. He is called Savior, Christ the Lord. Look, these terms convey that Jesus is not simply the Messiah of the Lord, as, as maybe would have been expected. No, he's the Messiah who is the Lord. The attribution to the newborn Jesus of a title reserved exclusively for God in the Old Testament corroborates this high Christology of the announcement here, that Jesus really is the Son of God. The Son of God. That term is so radical both for now, but definitely also for then. Think about who was introduced early on in this scene. Caesar Augustus. His name and the titles that he had, they promoted him as Savior of the world, as Son of God. The identification of the Messiah, Lord, as Savior, what it does is it counteracts the claims and the cult of Caesar Augustus, who repeatedly promoted himself as Savior of the common folk and Savior of the world. The coins of the day express Divi Filius, Son of God. There's an inscription that was found in Turkey that's in the British Museum that, that talked about him being and encouraging a cult to deify his name and reign. You can see this Mirian inscription, divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. The announcement of Jesus' arrival is a direct counter to this in antiquity, but also today. Like, look, this isn't the Jesus of Islam. This isn't the Jesus of the Mormons. This isn't the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. No, there's a divine and powerful and radical proclamation of who Jesus is as the Son of God, Christ the Lord, the Savior. And we need to count encounter him this way and wrestle with this claim that he has on his life from Luke's story, from the gospel story, and from the first Christmas you know, it's amazing that these, these amazing acclamations, these significant titles, they stand in contrast to the poverty of the sign, like a baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. But it's the great thought of the Christian faith that we have a God who knows the life we live because he too lived it and claim no special advantage over ordinary people. It's why we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. He knows us. He gets us. He came and embraced what his creation should never have experienced it and experienced it himself. This is why in Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Look, between this humble act and the significant announcement, I wonder, how seriously do you take Jesus? Like, is he just a significant figure once a year at Christmas time? See, an important person uh, for the weekend service you, you attend once in a while for that hour? Or is he incredibly meaningful all 168 hours of the week? Look, here's how I'm trying to identify how, how I treat Jesus. I look to, what do I do in my spare time? What do I think about Jesus when I have the time to choose freely what I'm going to do, what I'm going to think, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do recreationally? What do I do with my free time? How do I treat Jesus? Where is he important? Where is he not important? Maybe this is something important that we ought to assess in our own lives because the claim about who he is needs to be taken seriously. 
And more than that, look at these next verses. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Stop number four. Where are we looking for peace today? Where are you looking for, to satisfy your soul? Look, we're all looking for something that works intellectually and emotionally, and we're going to keep looking and be restless until we really find that source of peace for our souls. We might be wondering, though, like, if this is the claim that, that all of this peace and all of this wholeness can be found exclusively in Jesus, we might be wondering, like, am I a candidate for peace? When we talk about peace, we need to understand that it is ultimately found in the person of Jesus. And peace, of course, means peace between God and people. The healing of the estrangement caused by human evil and sin. More than just emotionally or mentally just feeling good. The fact that this is announced to be on earth brings all the expectations of the Jewish hope for justice, universal healing, and salvation related to the reign of God. It brings it all together. And Luke is pointing us towards the fact that the peace, the shalom for Israel, is linked with peace for the cosmos. Look, the arrival of Jesus at his birthplace means the availability of peace at any place, even the place that you find yourself today. What does it say about Christmas that God showed up? Well, I think it says that he came for you. Not just that there was a group of people that he, that he kind of liked and, and you got lumped in with those favorites. No, he came for you. With all of your past, with all of the experience of your present, he came for you. And the fact that he had to come to get us ought to tell us that we couldn't do anything to get to him. Like at Christmas time, often growing up in northern BC in Alberta, you know, it was, it was winter time and there was snow and, and people would often get stuck in their skidoos or with their vehicles as the snow kind of blew in. And in order to get unstuck, something, someone else had to come and assist and pull them out of the place that they were stuck because they couldn't get themselves out. That is what Christmas means for us. Jesus came, showed up for you to get you because there was nothing you could do to get to him. It's an ultimate act of love. John will tell us about this later on in the New Testament. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Don't you, don't you love the Christmas story? This is going to lead us to one final takeaway. Starting in verse 15, let's, let's check this out. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus is met personally then, and he can be encountered individually now. 
This year has been full of a lot of questions and there's a lot of things we maybe don't understand. Uh, but the thing is, is that the prerequisite for truth is not our understanding of it. Like I know we've had questions about this year. How can a mask help us fight a virus? How can systemic racism really be a, still a thing today? And maybe for the Christmas story, how can a baby born in an ancient time impact my life in the present time? The good thing is, is that you don't need to have all of the story figured out and understood in order for it to be true. Keep asking your questions, but at the very least, I think the Christmas story calls for ongoing contemplation. To really ponder, reflect, consider, think through the ramifications of this story and its claims. And I know that, that contemplation is a difficult thing today in our tap next, keep scrolling culture, a culture where the most pressed button in an elevator is the closed door button because we're so often people who want to get to what's next rather than think about what's now. What would it take for you this Christmas to consider what this story means afresh today? And it might be hard. Your situation might look bleak, but what Christmas reminds us is that there is more going on in the story of God than you can see or experience in your story. Think about what we've all just read and briefly covered in the last few minutes. It looks like a son of God is issuing a decree, but in reality what's happening is the son of God is altering history. It looks like the ultimate ruler conquers and gains victory by what he can take. But in reality, what's actually true is the ultimate ruler is going to come and claim victory by what he can give. It looks like there's cause for great fear, but actually there's cause for great joy. It looks like, you know, an important announcement ought to be made in a place of power and privilege. But what actually happens is it's made among the outcast in isolation. It looks like a place like Bethlehem is an insignificant spot on the map, when in reality what's actually true is a place whose name means house of bread is going to be the place where the provision of God, where the source of life and the sustainer of life is going to come and be known as the bread of life who offers life then and today. There's so much more to the Christmas story than we often think. There's so much more to Jesus than maybe we realized. And this life he offers is available today because of this story of Christmas, because of this event way back then that can impact your life right now. Don't you love the Christmas story?